thanks for coming this morning. Um, this is the fourth class in a series on anxiety and depression. Uh, so next week we'll talk about um, fighting for hope, and uh, the week after that is going to be several folks up here in front talking about their stories with anxiety and depression, which I'm looking forward to. I think that'll be really interesting. So, so far, Brandon has uh, taken a couple weeks to kind of lay the groundwork about what anxiety and depression are, um, how it relates to us and our physical bodies as humans, and, and last week John talked about lament and the biblical examples we have about how to take our fears to God and our pain to God. Um, I'm going to talk about this morning Understanding and Engaging Our Emotions. That's a huge title. Uh, I don't think at the end of this class you will understand all of your emotions or necessarily be able to engage them all in a healthy way perfectly. But if we could take a few steps in that direction together, that would be a good outcome from this morning. I'm not a psychiatrist or a psychologist. I don't have a master's in counseling, so I'm not an expert in how to understand and engage our emotions. But I'm somebody who's had a lot of emotions in my life. Uh, I like to read, so I've read a lot about how to understand anxiety and depression, and hopefully what I have to say this morning will be helpful uh, in some way. So before we get started in, in all of that, though, um, I want to take a minute and pray for Tim Ernest's son, Eli, who's in the hospital. Um, don't really know everything that Eli is going through, but uh, he's 12, I think, 12 or 13, and uh, they're, they're asking for a prayer for him. So let's take a minute and pray for Eli and Tim and their whole family, and then we'll get started. Would somebody else pray for Eli? Sorry to just throw it out there. Dan, would you be willing to pray for Eli? Thanks. Lord, thank you for this new day, for the mercies that are new every day, and the mercies that we here to this time And the doctors and all that surrounds us, Lord, that your peace that passes understanding would be with them. They control them to the best situation, Lord, that they would sense your, they would know that you are with them. So when it comes to understanding our emotions and trying to engage them in a healthy way, I think it's important just to say out loud and acknowledge as a group that fear is an inescapable reality of life on this earth. Everyone has been afraid. Everyone will be afraid. And I don't just mean like um, startled by lightning that's close to you, but fear deep down is something that all humans deal with. Your, your grandpa had anxiety. He just didn't talk about it. <coughs> it's easy for us to say, oh, what's wrong with all the millennials today? The 2020, everyone's so anxious and social media is ruining our lives. And anxiety's been around forever. Your grandpa had anxiety. People struggled silently with anxiety and depression for years and years and years. Uh, we're, we're more willing to talk about it, perhaps, <laughs> today, which is why maybe we feel like it's a worse problem than ever. Um, for me, you, you all have probably heard some of my story uh, about panic attacks um, and a season of a lot of anxiety that I went through 
2013 and 14 and in the wake of a lot of trauma and loss in our family. But um, I feel like worry, fear, anxious thoughts, depressive seasons uh, have been part of my entire life. Even when I was a small child, I remember less than five years old going to the emergency room uh, because of uh, terrible pain, stomach pain that was just because I was so anxious and upset. Um, Worry, anxiety, uh, constant battles with nightmares. My mom would come into my room at night when I was having nightmares and just sing hymns with me from church, and that's how I'd fall back to sleep, just singing hymns. Uh, For a good amount of my life, I had serious migraine headaches that would uh, make me physically sick. I'd just have to go to my room, uh, turn off all the lights, uh, and hope for the the relief of finally being able to throw up just to get done with the migraine. Um, From all kinds of stress, good stress and bad stress. I, I would go to a friend's birthday party routinely and have to come home early because of a migraine headache because it was a fun day. My parents talk about how every holiday, Christmas and Thanksgiving and Easter, getting together with my cousins, I always ended every day alone in the bedroom because I was it was too much stuff. Um, and then at, at kind of in my later childhood years and into high school, uh, really struggled with depression and especially in the summer. I just have very specific memories in the summer when the sun was going down feeling so, so totally alone at sunset in the summer. Um, uh, Really struggled with loneliness and always praying that God would give me some kind of a friend, somebody that I could know and would know me. So what I'm saying in all this is uh, I can relate. And and I wonder what it says about us that we show up to the Sunday school class on anxiety and depression, right? (laughs) It'd be nice to have a little help with this stuff, right? Either for me or for somebody that I love. And then we look at the Bible, and we hear things like this. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, says, Don't be anxious about your life. You're like, geez, thanks a lot, Jesus. I wish it was that easy. Paul, in Philippians 4, says, Do not be anxious about anything. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, what he says after this command is, God will take care of you, basically. Look at the birds. They get taken care of. Don't worry about your food and your life. God will take care of you. And Paul, in this passage, is saying, pray, be thankful, tell God what you need, and he'll take care of you. And anxious and fearful people can come to the Bible and, I think, wrongly use it like it's taking some kind of a pill. You know, I just need to read these verses about how I shouldn't be anxious or fearful. If I'll memorize this, if I'll meditate on this, if I'll really believe it, then that will fix my problem. So we take the pill, we memorize the Bible verses, and it doesn't tend to last long term. I'm somebody who's been trying to memorize Bible verses on fear and anxiety for 34 years, I don't know, 32 years, I'm 34 years old. As long as people have been trying to help me with my struggles, I've been trying to memorize Bible verses about how to get better. So I want to say Scripture is not a pill that we're going to take to make us feel better. In fact, the Bible treats fear like something that's normal in the Christian life. It's a very complex issue, but Psalm Psalm 56 helps us see that fear is normal. 
because it's not if I'm afraid, but when I'm afraid, I'll trust in you. So the question isn't whether this stuff is going to happen to us or whether it's necessarily a sin to have anxiety and depression. The question really is where will we turn whenever this stuff comes our way? When we're afraid, where will we turn? I want to look at anxiety and depression and these emotions that we feel as an invitation from Jesus. And I think Jesus gives us two invitations in Luke. First, let's look at Luke 12. If you have a Bible, you can turn there, but it's the Sermon on the Mount, and it's the same passage, uh, same thing as, as Matthew 6, when Jesus says, I tell you, don't be anxious about your life. Jesus gives that same kind of command don't be anxious of the, uh, about your life. Consider the ravens of the air, how God provides for them. Don't worry. And then he follows it up with this. Fear not, little flock. Fear not, little flock. I was reading about this passage and, and came across something that Ed Welch, you know, at CCF down the road, at Westminster Seminary, he said, we can read these commands in the Sermon on the Mount to not be afraid and view them just as an edict from God. Stop being afraid. Don't worry. Quit it. But he said in the Greek, and I'm not somebody who knows Greek, but uh, he, I'll trust Ed Welch. He says in the Greek, these are more than just commands. They're an invitation to trust Jesus. So the way Jesus is saying this is not just stop being anxious, but he's giving an, an alternative to trust in him. And I think as Jesus demonstrates this compassion that he's telling all these people what to do and teaching them how they should be, and, it, and he calls them little flock, he has a compassion towards us and our fear and our anxiety. Jesus cares about the poor and the powerless, and we see that over and over again in the Bible. But one of the most encouraging stories to me in the book of Luke happens in chapter 10. And Jesus is traveling, and he goes to Mary and Martha's house, and this is what happens. He's eating supper with them. Martha was distracted with much serving. She went up from him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But Jesus answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. So I've always seen this as Mary is doing the right thing and Martha is doing the wrong thing and Jesus is trying to get on Martha's case about her workaholism. But it was just recently that I read this passage and I actually heard Jesus inviting Martha to sit down with him and to slow down. Not just stop being anxious, but he he invited her to an alternative. It It was as if Jesus was saying, Listen, there's another spot for you to sit down if you want to. You don't have to keep being frustrated with all the things you have to do and the way people aren't coming through for you, but you could put it down and sit with me as well. And so as Jesus calls us his little flock who's afraid, and Jesus invites our anxious hearts to sit down with him, I want to say that our anxieties and our fears are an invitation from Jesus to come to him. I, I think it's a really special thing 
that we even as a church take six weeks to stop and dive into the topics of anxiety and depression. I think it means at least to some level we're an honest church that we would take, what is it, 12% of the Sundays we get in a year and say we're going to have some teaching on anxiety and depression. Jesus invites us. We have a God who's familiar with our weakness. He's a sympathetic high priest. And so as we come to him, if we hear that invitation as his little flock to come to him, to sit down, I think we can expect to hear his gentle encouragement. We can expect to hear his greatest promise, I am with you. I am with you. I think that's got to be the foundation of how we interact with our fear and our anxiety and our depression is knowing this promise from our Savior that he's with us. So let's shift a little bit with that foundation of Jesus being with us, Jesus not being frustrated or ashamed of us in our weakness. So with that foundation, let's talk about why do we get anxious and afraid and depressed? Why does this stuff happen to us? Our fear is a message. I don't want to do that quite yet. Our fear is a message. Um, An older pastor was speaking, and this really stuck out with me. He said, uh, we can expect to get more anxieties and fears as we get older. I don't know if some of our silver-haired people can uh, attest to that. I'm getting there, getting a few more. Uh, You can expect to get more anxieties as you get older because our fears identify the things that are important to us. And as we get older, some of these things that are important to us, we see more and more realistically how fragile they are, right? Our finances aren't where we thought they should have been when we hit this age. Our health looks more fragile. We're more worried about the well-being of the people that we love and the choices we see them making in life. And so there's just a lot more stuff to get anxious about as you get older. When you're eight, you can be anxious about what's going to happen at recess or how you're doing at school, but you don't have to really worry about if you're going to have enough money to make it to retirement or not when you're eight years old, right? You're not worried about your kid's spiritual life whenever you're eight years old. Fear is natural. As human beings, I think it's important that we get a biblical anthropology. And I don't don't mean the store anthropology. I mean human beings, the study of human beings, anthropology. So what are we as humans? We are image bearers who are made to worship God, and God made us good. We were made good. I think that's something we can lose sometimes as American evangelical Christians with good theology is that God made us good. He he was happy with humans when he made us. We had a perfect relationship with him. He gave us desires, beliefs, and loves. He also gave us physical bodies. That's important to remember when we talk about anxiety and depression, we have physical bodies bodies who are worshiping God with their bodies that can be weak or strong. And he put us into a time and a place with relationships around us. So this is what I'm going to say should be our biblical anthropology. We are image-bearing worshipers with desires, beliefs, and loves. We are physically embodied beings who worship with their bodies that can be weak or strong. 
and we are relationally and situationally embedded. So God has put you in a time and a place with people around you. But then what happened to all of us? The fall <coughs> disrupted and corrupted all levels of our personhood, our desires, our bodies, and our relationships, and even the world that we live in. So we're broken people with broken hearts, broken bodies, broken people around us who live in a broken world. This might be why we have some fear and anxiety. <clears throat> it leads to four different kinds of distorted views. First is a distorted view of God. As human beings, we can tend to see God as someone who's angry, that we need to appease and, and win his approval. I was reading a, a counselor talking about his clients who study with fear and anxiety from a Christian perspective, and he said, folks who come see me almost always view God as an angry father. They, we can tend to view God as someone who will accept us if we're good. He'll be more happy with us if we do the right thing. And someone who's not primarily loving and merciful. God primarily relates to us in the Bible, even though... He has rules and standards and laws. God is holy, but part of his holiness and, and the key attribute that he relates to us is as a loving and merciful father. We also get a distorted view of ourself because of the fall. <coughs> Human beings have this need for certainty. We want to know what's going to happen. We can tend to be perfectionistic or, or take on too much responsibility for the world that, around us, especially anxious and fearful people. We can tend to overvalue our thoughts. And we struggle to tolerate anxiety. So when we feel like something's unsure or uh, we don't really know what's going to happen, that's very difficult for anxious and depressed people to live in that tension. Uh, of unresolved and an unknown future. We get, an, uh, we get a distorted view of Scripture, and by distorted view of Scripture, I mean uh, we can expect Scripture to tell us too much about how to live. We want to know, if I make this decision, will life be good for me? How can I raise my kids and ensure that they'll all be healthy, happy Christians? And the Bible just won't tell us that. The Bible will tell us how to be wise, how to make generally good decisions, but it will not guarantee us if we do A, we're going to get B. But for anxious and fearful and depressed people, we would love a lot more guidance about how we ought to live so that we can control that outcome. We have a desire for certainty and security that the Bible won't resolve for us. And we can start to view the commands in the Bible as harsh standards that we need to live up to, not life-giving guidance about how to live. We can hear Jesus say, don't be anxious, and we just feel guilty that we are anxious. We don't hear that as an invitation that he can supply that for us. And then the fourth thing is, we can get a distorted view of the Christian life. The heart of Christianity is receiving God's love and giving love to other people. That is the heart of Christianity. Receiving God's love and giving love to other people. But what we can often do with Christianity, especially if you're like me and you kind of grew up in fundamentalism, you, you want to know 
what can I do to make God happy with me? And we shift into a works righteousness that if I would just figure out the right things to do, the right job to take, the right person to marry, the right way to be a parent, the right way to handle my finances, the right way to be a leader, then life would be good, God would be happy with me, and I, have, I would have positive outcomes. But that's not what the Bible presents to us as Christianity. In fact, if we just were to interpret our life based on the Bible and what the New Testament tells us life is going to be like, we would expect a lot more uncertainty, a lot more suffering, a lot more loss. We get confusion around what is temptation, what is weakness, and what is actual sin. So we can start to feel shame and guilt on about things that we shouldn't really feel shame and guilt about. We live, we're broken people. It's not a sin to be a human being. <laughs> it's a sin to disobey God. Uh, for me, in college, I had this group of Christian friends. I went to a Christian college, had a group of Christian friends, and we thought we were really helping each other. Uh, and there's a lot of a lot of this that was really good. So I don't want to. I'm not throwing the baby out with the bathwater. But we thought we were really helping each other uh, progress in our Christian life. And we had one saying that we would say to each other, which was, "Run from the run from the line, run from the line." So it's this concept that there's like a line. Sin is a line. Whether it's I don't know, like looking at inappropriate images or um, cheating on a paper. And so instead of as most people want to do, walking up to the line and not committing the infraction, we're always encouraging each other to run from the line. And so it devolved into this almost competition of like who can do the farthest away from sinful things. Uh, so you can't even you can't even like acknowledge that someone is pretty because that might be too close to the line of lust. That kind of a mentality elevates the law and self produces self-righteousness rather than creating some kind of a humble posture towards God that I need your mercy, I need you, I'm dependent on you to keep me away from willful sin. An honest admission that this problem of sin is too big to wrangle on my own, but when we can kind of boil down scripture to something I can handle and something I can obey on my own, we shift really into a mode of self-righteousness that it's easy for us to live with. In preparing for this class, it's been really interesting to um, read about scrupulosity. There's not a word we use in America very often anymore. I don't know, do, do over on the other side? Scrupulosity, or uh, as CCF calls it, um, religious obsessive compulsive disorder. And man, it is uh, something I totally related to as I have read about this. Um, so people with religious obsessive compulsive disorder, people with overly sensitive consciousnesses, people who are a little too scrupulous, their standards for themselves are a little too high, live in a cycle. So what happens, see if you can relate to this. An unwelcome thought comes, and then we take that thought and judge it, and say, ooh, I shouldn't think that way, I'm, I'm wish that thought wouldn't have come into my head. I feel bad about that. I don't want that to happen to me again. What can I do to get rid of this thought? Then we do something, leave a situation, talk to somebody about it, 
then we feel like, oh, I got rid of that thought, and I, I've managed it, I've shoved it away, and I feel like life is calmer now, and I'm in control a little bit of this situation. And then the cycle repeats itself. But this is the line about scrupulosity that struck out, that uh, stuck out to me. Attempting to suppress the thought by trying to ignore it only makes the thought more insistent and the anxiety more prominent. And so you build this pattern into your life of uh, really over-judging the thoughts and emotions that come into your head and trying to fix it your own way. And then we build these neural pathways and that's how we start to relate to our fear and anxiety with shame and then with management on our own. Here's some examples uh, that this counselor gave of these kind of situations. Uh, as, as overly sensitive, conscious people live this way, here's some consequences he saw. He told a story of a guy who wouldn't leave his home because he was so guilty that he didn't share the gospel with every person. He took scripture seriously that he needs to be telling the good news of Jesus and eventually he couldn't go out anymore because he felt so much shame around anyone he didn't share the gospel with. He talked about a dad that wouldn't hold his daughter anymore because he was worried about having thoughts that he shouldn't have. A lady who wouldn't go to church because she was worried that she might become attracted to somebody that she saw there and be distracted from worship. So those are the extreme things, but what we can tend to do is have these thoughts and then feel unwarranted shame around them. Maybe you leave conversations with your friends, hanging out with a group, and you play it back in your head. Was I 100% truthful with everything that I said? Could I have been just a little bit more encouraging? I didn't handle that meeting very well. I could have, I could have done a better job. This is the kind of overly sensitive consciousnesses that we Christians can live with. I don't know if anyone else can relate, but I really related to this <coughs> paradigm. So I want to finish up my time, though, talking about fear and anxiety being a message to us. Really what I want to do is to invite you to stop judging your thoughts and instead view them as a message. We reflexively judge our fears and anxieties whenever they come into our head and we feel them as <coughs> sinful. We feel shame for our fear and, and our anxiety. We feel guilty. We feel weak. We feel alone. And I, I want to say that fear is not primarily a problem for us to solve. Fear is not primarily a problem for us to solve. Fear is a problem that Jesus has solved on the cross. One day, we won't have any fear. We'll be with him. We'll be made whole. But it's not your job to manage your fears primarily. You're not alone. I want to suggest that anxiety might not be a sin every time. Fear and anxiety are only sin if you refuse to turn to Jesus. Then and only then would we talk about fear and anxiety as sin. But it's normal to get fearful and anxious. It's normal to get depressed. And instead of feeling shame and guilt around that initial, initial experience, I want to say uh, only if you refuse to go to Jesus should you start thinking of this as a sin. So instead of trying to shut off your fears 
Instead of trying to control them, obsess over them, ignore them, overcompensate for them, I want to suggest that we start accepting them. <coughs> Receive your fear and anxiety and your surprising thoughts. Don't judge them. For the sensitive conscience, like me, let the bizarre thoughts go. I want to say to this dad who's worried about holding his daughter because he might have some kind of a bizarre thought, is that, is that you? Just let it go. You don't have to obsess over bizarre, bizarre thoughts that come into your head. Remember that our enemy can assault us with fiery darts, Scripture says, right? So uh, if you're on the train going into the city and you have an impulse to scream profanity, <laughs> you can just let that go. You don't have to judge that thought. If you're sitting at a restaurant and you say, you know, I could just walk up, walk, stand up and walk out, and they'd never notice. They're too busy. I could get my food for free. Instead of this guilt, like, what's wrong with me that I would think this way, you can just let that thought go. You don't have to judge it. But for our more real anxieties, the deeper stuff that's repetitive and ongoing, I want to say, let's accept those as a message. It's not a sin to get a headache when you're dehydrated. It's not a sin to sleep when you're tired. It's not a sin to experience fear and anxiety when you are a broken person living in a broken and complicated world. It's very normal. So instead of saying, I shouldn't worry about that presentation at work today, or I'm ashamed that I keep having nightmares about my health, what if we said, Jesus, I keep having these thoughts and fears. Will you please help me with them? What would you, Jesus, like me to do with these thoughts that come into my head? What would you want me to do with my anxiety? But we move so fast and so reflexively to judgment and management to either numb our anxieties and fears or to try to fix them that we never really engage our feelings until they become a huge issue. Right? And that's why we, we see people who have... Uh, a breakdown, essentially, before they're willing to be honest about the way these things were building and building and building. So let's view anxiety and depression, fear and worry, as an invitation to slow down, to listen to our thoughts a little bit, and pay attention to what's going on in our souls. And then to take those feelings to Jesus and ask him what he might have us to do with them. Because, you know, Jesus has promised to carry our burdens with us. He's the one who would know how to manage them. He would love to carry that with us. I want to close with um, two lists. So first, let's think about, maybe, I've, the reason I'm sharing this first list is because I think it could potentially be helpful for you uh, in not judging all of your thoughts and not feeling shame around all your anxiety. So there may be some non-sin reasons that you deal with anxiety and depression. We all have varying levels of brain-based dysfunction. We're not everything that we should be as human beings on this side of the fall. So there's a chance that this is some wiring and some hormonal issues that go on for you that make you tend towards anxiety and depression. And that's okay, that's not a sin. We all have relational influences, we have people that raised us, 
the friends that we had and the mentors that shaped us as young people, those are things that are outside of our control. And we're born into a time and a place. We, li we grow up in a society and in a culture and in a climate that shapes us. It was interesting to me to learn that obsessive compulsive disorder and uh, the idea of scrupulosity and having an overly sensitive conscience, those were not major problems in the world. They can't find a record of people struggling with this stuff until the Renaissance uh, and the shift to uh, individualism in Western Europe. It was 1215, the fourth Lateran Council that said that individuals need to regularly confess their sins and that your thought could be a mortal sin. So there, there was a shift in the Christian church to uh, a kind of a group identity and group sins and group need for Jesus to the individual sins and individual confession and individual need for Jesus. I think there's a good emphasis on me and my relationship with God and how am I doing and what sins are going on in me, but we get so hyper-focused on ourselves that it just builds pressure. Um, so this shift in the 1200s really emphasized individual responsibility for, their, for your eternal destiny. Where you end up depends on you. And prior to that, it was where you end up depends on the group that you're in and how does God relate to the group that you're in. Are you in the church? Are you in Israel? And now it's you. And there's an emphasis also in our world about your individual de destiny, not just eternally, but on earth from age zero to 90, you're responsible for getting that to a good place, right? But the good thing we're growing up, you can be anything you want to be, Brian. Have a dream and achieve it. The bad thing is, if I don't achieve it, then that's my fault, right? That's part of that message. Um, there's been a, an emphasis just in the last 200 years about revivalist theology, this idea that individuals need to make an individual decision to follow Jesus with their individual life. Um, is just something that wasn't as present. I'm not saying that's necessarily bad. I think it's important to evaluate your individual life with Jesus. But I want to point out that there's a, more of an obsession with the person as an individual than there was five, eight, a thousand years ago. 500, 800, a thousand years ago. So with this feeling that you're responsible for your destiny on earth, you're responsible your destiny eternally, these could be some reasons that we live in an anxious and fearful time. And there's personal weakness. <coughs> in the Bible, people who are afraid and anxious are not condemned by Jesus. This is seen, uh, fear and anxiety in the Bible, I want to say, are overwhelmingly presented as weaknesses that Jesus is patient with willing to forgive, willing to minister to, not as high-handed, offensive sins towards God. God is patient with our fear and anxiety. And this is how I want to finish, a list of practical help. So I hope that we can come away from this just with a little bit more willingness to uh, listen to our thoughts rather than judge them, 
when we are fearful and anxious to say, is this a message to me? Not just a sin that I need to fix, but is this a message to me? Here's some practical help. To say, uh, suffering is normal. Everyone in this room is either suffering right now, got done with suffering, or about to be suffering in the near future. Right, Ray? That's the reality of life on earth. Some of us live with a low level, suffering unmet expectations constantly, decade after decade after decade, and that wears on you. Some people go through serious, horrible, painful loss and loneliness. Most of us probably have a little bit of both of those going on in life. Suffering is normal. And I think when we say that out loud to people who aren't in the middle of it, nobody, nobody needs to hear, hey, suffering is normal when they've just experienced a terrible loss. But if we can say it out loud when things aren't terrible, I can start to believe that. And then when it comes, maybe I'll be a little more prepared to uh, absorb it. I, just one question about that. Yeah. Um, I think one of the things when you are thinking of suffering is that when you are now, not to be fearful of the possibility yeah, of yeah, suffering in the yeah, future. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's a really good point. It's, it's not something that we should be all that's tense right. and bracing ourselves for. Yeah, thank you. Um, maybe have this thought in my head. Uh, I want to doubt my doubts. Whenever I'm afraid of God's goodness towards me, his love to me, whether he really will take care of me, <coughs> doubt your doubts. Be quick to say, you know what? I have a... Um, rock-solid foundation that I know God will take care of me, that he's in control, that he loves me. I know I'm feeling this way right now, but God help me to doubt the doubts that I have. Um, practically, I want to suggest something that's been very helpful for me when I'm dealing with panic and anxiety is practice of mindfulness. A Christian counselor, uh, I was able to sit in a seminar on how to use mindfulness to help folks who've been victims of trauma. Um, and it was super helpful for me uh, just to slow down and uh, breathe on purpose, counting. Uh, this isn't some kind of like crazy, uh, mystical, um, anti-God practice. It's just slowing down, listening to your thoughts. And two, two visuals that helped me very much were to just sit quietly, close my eyes, and imagine that I was on a beach and as the waves roll in, those waves are all the fears and anxieties that uh, were kind of assaulting me. And so I just even see on the waves uh, the things I was afraid of. And they were coming in, and I, I could acknowledge them. And then as the tide went out, I let them just sweep back out and say, you know what? I acknowledged it. I don't need to deal, that. I'll, uh, deal with that. I'll let it sweep back out. Or that I'm standing in a lobby of a big office building, and there's one of those revolving doors and my fears and anxieties are outside on the sidewalk, and they come in the revolving door, and I see them. They do a spin, and then they head right back out to the, to the sidewalk. It, that's not a permanent fix, but it really helped me in moments of panic to get some perspective, to slow down, and to put these things uh, in their proper place. Consider getting professional help. Consider the purpose of uh, medication, especially as human beings who have broken bodies, we may just need a little bit of help with the chemical imbalances that are going on in our bodies. We may need to go some, to somebody besides a Christian friend or a pastor 
and see somebody who's professionally trained to help us talk through these things. And that's very valid and for a lot of us probably really important. Embrace ambiguity. Uh, just admit to yourself that you cannot control the future. It's going to be uncertain. This is a big struggle for me to just embrace an uncertain future and admit how limited I am in being able to control the outcomes for my family and my life and the world that I live in. Uh, I just cannot control the future. And to say that out loud is a helpful perspective building thing. Look upward. See a God who loves you and who will take care of you. I don't say that as some kind of a trite truism, band-aid over all your problems, but foundationally believing that God is watching and he cares and he'll take care of you. And then finally, to look outward, to see other people, hopefully this church is that kind of a place, but to find other people who can be encouraging to you, who can relate to the stuff that you're going through and help you get perspective. Um, I think this is, looking outward is really helpful uh, just as we share our struggles and sins with each other and it starts to feel more normal uh, to, to have the struggles that we have. I just, I know when older people will make a statement, even offhand, about something they struggle with, and for me, I may have shame around that struggle in my life. Maybe I've never told anybody that that's a fear or a sin or a problem for me. And to hear an older person just say that they struggle in a similar way is really reassuring. It builds community and is encouraging that, okay, I can keep on doing this thing. So uh, suffering is normal, but look upward to God who loves you. Look outward to a community of faith who will love you and support you as well. So I'm done two minutes early. Gold star for Ryan. Um, I want to pray, and uh, and then we can chat or head in to worship, get some coffee. Father in heaven, thank you for your love to us. Thank you that we can be honest with you about our fears and anxieties. Um, thank you that we have a great high priest who is acquainted with every struggle that we have. Jesus, who knows 100% what it's like to be a human being, and there's nothing that we go through that he can't relate to. Help us to turn to him, God. Um, help us to receive help from the Holy Spirit in our time of need. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you. Thanks, everybody. Thank you.